0: Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, Medical Education podcast from the Children's Emergency Department in Derby. My name's Ian Lewins, one of the consultants in CED, and I am really, really happy to be joined today by uh, Dr. Tessa Davis, consultant in paediatric emergency medicine at the Royal London Hospital. But many of you will know Tessa more famously from the fantastic, the premium website for paediatrics, which is Don't Forget the Bubbles. Tessa, thank you so much for joining us today. Very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So, t- quick disclaimer, Tessa is a bit of a hero of mine, so I shall try not to get all fanboy about it. Oh, you're going to make me blush. Absolutely. Um, and we're going to talk, it's that time of year, it's November, it's winter in, in the UK, coming into winter in the UK, and we thought we'd talk a bit about bronchiolitis, because that's all we're going to see for the next few months between ourselves. Exactly. Uh, so... As a very quick start. For those people who are not familiar or don't do much paediatrics, what do we mean by bronchiolitis? What is bronchiolitis?
1: So bronchiolitis is a viral infection. Um, It's like you say, it's hugely common. And certainly over the last few weeks, we've seen a large increase in the number of infants presenting with bronchiolitis. So it's a, a lower respiratory tract infection. It affects babies, infants under the age of one or two years old um and you get symptoms just like early symptoms just like a common cold so you get runny nose bit of a cough a bit snuffly and in some babies it can affect them a bit more in that they get increased work of breathing uh so not uh, you you will see signs of respiratory distress when you see them but that increased work of breathing uh, when the parents are seeing it at home means that actually they're having trouble feeding as well because you can't Breathe. It's hard to breathe and feed at the same time when you've got a blocked nose. And so often these babies, they're feeding um, um, intake drops off and parents bring them into
0: hospital. And very often they're diagnosed as they walk through the door by the nurse in triage who goes, oh, there's a child with a bronchiolitis cough, don't they?
1: Yes, exactly. So they do have this classic cough, which I'm sure everyone will hear over hospitals
0: over the next few months. So these are coughing, wheezing babies who are struggling to feed basically now my the, the group of medical students that I've got at the moment the moment were sort of complaining to me to saying god that's all we're seeing at the moment on the ward is bronchiolitis and you'd think that given that this is so ubiquitous at this time of year that everybody manages bronchiolitis the same but that's yeah, not I'm-
1: it's not that you're absolutely that's not the case at all. And this is why this paper that we're going to dis- discuss is so relevant, because they actually looked. this, the predict group actually looked at the practice. They're focused in Australia and New Zealand, but they looked at the practice across hospitals in Australia and New Zealand and found that actually most of us have huge variations in practice and our practice really has no bearing on what is best evidence based medicine
0: and you know this is not just to be clear this is you know this is not just us saying oh the gp gave a nebulizer how stupid that gp is this is actually practice within departments this is practice across the uk this is differences in practice you know globally isn't it it's not it's yeah not- that's right
1: i mean they specifically focused on emergency departments and they they did not focus at all on gps or ward-based treatment so it's just pediatric emergencies uh, departments and this is, we are doing lots of different things, probably individual clinicians do different things on a, on a week-to-week basis, departments are doing different things in the UK, in
0: Australia and I'm sure it's the same in other countries too. So this is a paper that's uh, published in the Journal of Paediatrics and Child Health in 2018 and is from the PREDICT network and, and as you said, this is an, uh, an Australian group, isn't it? Yeah, it's
1: the equivalent of Peruki. In Australia, so it's a research collaborative, a research network, and like peruki they produce research across Australia and coordinate different hospitals uh, building their own research.
0: So this is a a a big big study. This is a big collaborative thing to try and sort of come up with, you know. And I think they came up with twenty (laughs) two recommendations. But then with investigations, what investigations, if any, should should we be doing? What are they recommending?
1: well on the investigations front I guess there's not that many options so the first question is whether we should be doing bloods or urine testing yeah. on these kids and the answer is that really no we shouldn't but what they have done is put a caveat on very young babies coming in so we're talking about the group where infants are two months or younger and what the guidance they've given is in this group, if you've got a child two months and younger, you think it's bronchiolitis, but you're not clear, and mm. they have a temperature, then in that group, you should be more cautious, and you should be doing bloods and urine in them, which is really in keeping with our practice, we all get more nervous about young babies with sure. temperatures. So they're just saying, be careful in that group not to... Not to be too quick to put it down to bronchiolitis. But in uh, older infants, older babies, you don't need to be doing blood tests or urine dips on these patients. We know what they've got. Like you say, we know what they've got as soon as they come into triage. We don't need to do further testing. And then the second question is about whether we should be doing um, nasopharyngeal aspirates. So we know that bronchiolitis is caused by viruses, most commonly RSV. And in many hospitals, they'll do uh, an MPA before the patient's admitted to the ward. Yeah. And what this article said is that the, that doesn't have really any benefit for the patient. Fine, we know what bug it is, but it doesn't make any difference to our management. But it may have a value in how we cohort these patients on the wards. So some wards will have bays where they can cohort all babies with RSB bronchiolitis. And although at this time of the year, we're just at the start of it, over the next few months, this will become more of a an issue for the wards as more and more babies get admitted and we can't put them all in cubicles so there may be a benefit for our NPA uh, is when it comes to cohorting babies
0: okay and i think that sort of goes along with what many centers do i think there is some individual variation between admitting speciality admitting units but i think most places are tending to do NPAs. Is, is my feeling yeah i think so um And again, on that note of sort of the very, very small, where bronchiolitis is probably the answer, but but you're not quite sure. Um, I'm sure Peruki recently asked whether people did LPs um, on these very, very small babies, the the under 2s. Is that something that that Predict looked at?
1: They haven't talked about LPs. They've mentioned only urine and blood testing.
0: Um, And what about chest x-rays? Good thing? Bad thing?
1: In this paper, it doesn't look like they have considered chest x-rays specifically. Uh, They seem to have focused on urine and blood testing. I think from our own practice, we know that we don't routinely do chest x-rays in babies with bronchiolitis unless there's a question about the diagnosis.
0: So the important message really here is, is less is more. So stop doing the routine investigations unless they're very, very little and then we're thinking maybe do a urine as well.
1: That's right. In your barn door case of an infant coming in with bronchiolitis, everyone knows what's going on and we don't need to go nuts on over investigating.
0: Okay, so we stop investigating. Um, then we need to think about okay, the parents are looking at you to do something. Um, and often these children are very, very wheezy, and the temptation is well, I'll just give them a bit of bronchodilator and see if that helps. Should, should we be trialing salbutamol?
1: This is an ongoing question that I'm sure you you guys talk about. We have this conversation most weeks uh, on the department, on the shop floor, about whether to give these babies bronchiolitis. And actually, there's quite strong evidence that there is no benefit in giving salbutamol inhalers or to infants with bronchiolitis. It doesn't improve the outcomes for admission to hospital. It doesn't improve their oxygen sats, and it doesn't improve their length of stay. And even more than that, there's some... Weaker evidence to suggest that there can be adverse events due to use of salbutamol. So basically, if your kid's got bronchiolitis, there is no benefit in giving salbutamol.
0: Okay, and that, that's a really important point, That, that the, the idea of we'll just give it a go. Actually, we should maybe knock completely on the head and say, look, there's no evidence it works, and maybe it actually does harm
1: it's true and I do that, we should give it a go thing myself as well so if there's a baby who's, you know, around the one year mark, you think, well, you'll try it, maybe it'll help. This doesn't say don't do not do that, I mean I don't think your chances of adverse events from giving a one-off a trial hmm. of subbututamol here is probably minimal but I think you need to be
0: realistic that you're, you are not going to make a big difference to the baby. No so if we can't nebulize subutamol, let's find something else to nebulize and certainly <laughs> um, not something I've ever used, but I've certainly seen in some American uh, groups that they've used nebulized adrenaline um, And again, the, the group have looked at that and, and my understanding is not helpful.
1: Not helpful either. And like you, I've never seen it used. I assume that it is used in some departments in Australia, which is why they've included looking at this. But yeah, there is no role for nebulized adrenaline and bronchiolitis.
0: OK, so it's no to salbutamol, no to the adrenaline. How about then a bit of hypertonic saline? Now, Some people like hypertonic saline. What were their thoughts on this?
1: Well, yes, some people do like it, and we see that. That's probably more commonly used than a salbutamol inhaler from the kids that I've seen. And they looked at this, so initially the papers they looked at showed that using hypertonic saline nebs might give you a slightly reduced length of stay, but the re- reduction was 0.45 days, so you're talking a very small reduction, but actually when they looked m- more closely at these papers, what happens is it, the, the length of stay is based on the hospital deciding to discharge the child, and two of the papers used very different discharge criteria from the others. Right. So it, it, it meant that they were essentially keeping the babies for different lengths of time based on different discharge criteria. So when they excluded these two kind of outlying papers, what they found was actually there's no benefit in using hypertonic saline
0: at all. Which is a shame because I think that sort of came and people got quite excited about maybe this would help. You know, it makes us feel better that we're doing something, but
1: uh, it, it did. And the feeling better that you're doing something is a really big <laughs> thing with bronchiolitis because these babies, they look um, you know, they're working hard. They've come into hospital. They need to be in hospital, and you feel like, gosh, there must be something you could at least try. Um, but
0: hypertonic saline is not the thing. Okay, so we can't nebulize anything let's let's give them something then let's how about steroids everybody loves steroids how about <laughs> a steroids yeah so steroids
1: again i don't know how commonly people give this for bronchiolitis but it, there is no evidence that there is any benefit in giving steroids
0: okay how about antibiotics
1: and antibiotics the same that there's no benefit in giving antibiotics for treating bronchiolitis of course you wouldn't be treating the bronchiolitis because it's a viral infection you'd be treating a secondary bacterial infection but as the authors of this paper have shown the risk of secondary bacterial infection in bronchiolitis is very low and there's a potential harm from Giving antibiotics, adverse reactions, drug errors, and of course antibiotic resistance. So, the recommendation is not to routinely use antibiotics in babies with
0: bronchiolitis. Okay, so those children that we see coming in on the hat trick of I've given a course of steroids, a course of antibiotics, and I've given them a nebulizer, probably not. (laughs) Probably not. Okay. So we're not going to do any investigations and our treatments are largely ineffective. So it's, it's all going well so far. (laughs) Yeah, Um, exactly. We then need to think about, we're going to oxygen. And this is again, always a bit of a a debate about when to give oxygen. Um, What did they suggest?
1: Well, they've kind of embraced the fact that there is a debate about this. So, there's, not speci- there's no specific studies on the use of supplemental oxygen therapy and a lot of what we do is ma- we've made assumptions that you have to keep your sats above a certain number yeah. but that number varies from paper to paper so some places will target sats over 90 some over 94 um, and there'll be individual variation in practice as well so th- it's very difficult to compare to say exactly what the number is um, and also we don't um, no, we, we don't really know the adverse effects of having your sats run slightly low so mm-hmm. let's say your sats were running at 89 for a few days we, we don't actually know the impact of that so it's finding the balance and giving guidance on that and they've essentially said that the guidance is that you should give oxygen to keep the sats at 92 and above
0: Yeah, and that that always sort of provokes a bit of debate, isn't it? Is it less than 92? Is it 92 and above? Is it above 92? And you get a sort of slight semantic argument around 1%, don't you?
1: Yes, exactly. And there was an interesting paper uh, a couple of years ago that looked at if you... If we, reduced the, if we increased the SATs on the monitor beside the bed by like 2% or 1%, it actually makes a big difference to how clinicians feel about that baby and whether they're more likely to send them home in a baby with bronchiolitis. So we do get very obsessed about the difference between 1% and 2%, and I think that lack of clarity is just because there really is no evidence. So take your pick, but you probably should be trying to maintain the SATs above the low
0: 90s. I like that answer, the low 90s. That's nice. Nice. <laughs> And, of course, that number drops depending on how few beds you've got available. It does, the exactly. So, yes. Okay. Um, and then once they're admitted, saying they're admitted, there's, there is this issue of SATs monitoring and how do you do it? And do, do you do sort of spot checks? Do you do hourly checks, four-hourly checks, or do you do continuous monitoring? And, and this is something they looked at as well, isn't it?
1: They did. They've kind of said that there's not if your baby's stable, there's not really much evidence that doing continuous sats monitoring
0: is helpful to them so it's, it's maybe spot checks are just as good maybe, maybe. And, uh, like we've discussed you have a tendency
1: to then obsess about you know what what the actual second digit is which is probably not that important
0: and i'm very aware of, of paediatric colleagues who just sort of go around turning the monitors off <laughs> and looking at the baby and observing the baby and managing the baby rather than necessarily the number yes um What else can we do for these poor little things? Uh, Physio, does that help?
1: There's no evidence for the benefit of physiotherapy in bronchiolitis. No.
0: Um, And what else can we do? We can think about uh, issues with feeding, then there's saline drops. I've never personally been a big fan of saline drops I don't think they're dreadfully helpful Um, and and is that your experience?
1: Yeah I mean it's again it's the case of doing something and I think particularly for parents at home find it helpful to use saline drops for decongesting um, but it's not I don't think that's an evidence-based practice they look they did look at feeding and feeding alternatives Uh, so if you've got a child with who's having trouble feeding orally that either iv fluids or ng fluids are fine for rehydration
0: okay and um for those sort of unfamiliar with it generally speaking our local practice would be a cut off of half the normal feeds would be a, where we sort of step in and intervene and think about putting nasogastric um, that's right down.
1: that's I think that's fairly standard.
0: Um, and then the, the last thing that that we sort of need to think about, and they looked at, is is which is sort of becoming increasingly popular is is high flow oxygen. Um, not something I'm personally very familiar with. I know some of, some of my ward based colleagues do. Um, is there any evidence for high flow?
1: They didn't talk about high flow that much in this paper. Um, they mentioned it a bit at the end and just said there've been limited studies. On the use of outside ICU, saying there's low level evidence of benefit, and that's pending larger RCTs. And there was a recent uh, big trial uh, on the effect of high flow on escalation from ward based care to PICU care. So there are other studies going on on looking at the use of high flow. In our practice, we would we would start it. A, we feel that the child's struggling too much with their work mm. of breathing. I think a problem in many units is where that baby then goes. Can they go to the ward on high flow? Mm. Um, and if they can't, then that obviously causes a problem. As you will need to pick your bed for that baby, and that can be a limitation. And this same group, the predict group, that were involved in a recent trial in the pre. This is the preview trial, which looked at the use of high flow in these infants and whether it impacted on whether it prevented their need to escalate care for, to pick you if they were started on high flow. Mm. And one of the things from that study showed that actually children can, babies can go onto the ward quite safely on high flow and they're generally pretty stable on it.
0: So I think the, the, the take home, I guess, for me is that actually, you know, it's, it, it's clear that yes, there are variations, but generally speaking, what, I do, what my team tends to do, is pretty much in line with what the, the this Australian group's recommending, which is pretty minimal stuff, really. Don't investigate, don't do too much.
1: Exactly. And it's in line with other guidelines, with the NICE guidelines, American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines. So We should all be on the same page and I'm sure the variation is just that sense of trying to do something or feeling like you have to do something but basically we need to step back and resist that and you know oxygen is fine feeding support is fine but any other medications are really unlikely to positively affect your patient.
0: And in the very very small always consider have you got the diagnosis right?
1: Absolutely. So don't be, because we're about to see hundreds of patients come through the doors with bronchiolitis, there will be the odd patient that has something else. So try to keep your mind open and think of other things.
0: And uh, in, sort of things like infection and, and most typically the one not to miss is this sort of the cardiac baby that sneaks in amongst the thousands of other bronx.
1: Yes I'm sure we've all seen that so you and it can take time to diagnose that baby you know you may you may not pick that up in ED but it's important to always think of that sometimes these cardiac babies they can present looking very similar with work of breathing sounding a bit crackly um, and struggling with feeds so
0: yeah keep an open mind. Lovely so that's that's our Christmas sorted that's our winter sorted we now know we're all going to do exactly the same thing we hope.
1: Yes, I hope so. That would
0: be great. Lovely. Tessa, thank you so much for your time. It's very much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Okay, take care. Thank you.